This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we study a passage of scripture this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that you have given it to us for us to study it, to reflect upon it, to meditate upon it, to internalize it and make it a very much a part of our thinking and part of our life. Father, we pray that as we continue this study, we may realize that this is presenting to us the high calling and the challenge to be a faithful disciple, pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, not just for today, but because this has an everlasting impact on us and on our destiny as we will rule and reign with you and with Christ in the coming kingdom. Now, Father, we pray that you guide and direct our thinking today. In Christ's name, amen. As we come to Matthew 5, 10 and 12, we come to a topic that is one that is not always pleasant and one that often seems to be a little bit uh, incongruous. We are told here that we are to be happy when we are persecuted unjustly. So the reason given is because there is a future destiny. So in a very real sense, this deals with that broad topic, part of a spiritual stress buster, living today in light of eternity. Nothing perhaps puts as much pressure on us in terms of external adversity as dealing with people or systems that are specifically hostile or antagonistic to us simply because we are Christians attempting to live the Christian life. And so the motivation for us that is given here is related to our future destiny in the kingdom, specifically stated in verse 12 to be related to rewards in heaven. This comes in a section in the Sermon on the Mount between verse 3 of this chapter and verse 16, dealing with the character and calling of those who will inherit the kingdom. As I've said before, for those of you who are visitors, we must understand that there, there's a group of, of phrases that are used in the New Testament that sound to many of us as if they're talking about getting justified. And by that I mean, Scripture teaches the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that at the instant we put our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior, what happens in terms of the, the justice of God is he 
uh, imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. That means he credits that to our account. We are born unrighteous. We are condemned in sin, and all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. We can do nothing to merit the righteousness of Christ. We can do nothing to merit God's favor. But when we trust in Christ, his righteousness is given to us. It's credited to our account. It's as if we have a bank account that has a an enormous deficit that can never be paid off. And yet what Christ does is he sort of cosigns for us so that God the Father looks not at the negative balance of our account, but he looks at the positive infinite balance of Christ's perfect righteousness. And when he sees that we possess the righteousness of Christ, he makes a judicial declaration that we are righteous, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who Christ is and what he did on the cross. So this is called the doctrine of justification by faith. Sometimes we refer to this as the first phase of salvation. The Bible talks about three phases or stages of salvation and uses that word salvation in these three different tenses. We are saved at the initial act of faith. In Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin so that we have eternal life and our eternal destiny is set and secure. But then in our Christian life, as we grow and mature and apply the word, we are said to be saved from the power of sin, saved from the power of sin in our life so that uh, rather than living on the basis of our sin nature, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and following, we uh, live on the basis of who we are in Christ as new creatures in Christ. So the process of the spiritual life is being saved from the power of sin, And then when we die and we're absent from this body, we're face-to-face with the Lord, we no longer have a sin nature, and we are saved from the presence of sin. So that word salvation is a word that is used in these three different ways, and it's very important to distinguish that when we read Scripture, because we all come out of a background in American evangelicalism where the word saved is thought to always refer to phase one salvation being delivered from and saved from the penalty of sin. But when Jesus is addressing his disciples in Matthew 5 through 7, he is not talking to people who need to learn how to get eternal life. He is talking to disciples who already possess eternal life, and they need to learn how to live in light of their eternal destiny. They need to be challenged, as we do, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that means in terms of being a disciple. That word disciple is a a key word in the Gospels relating to uh, Jesus' challenges to his followers to be students, to be followers of him in every of their life. The term disciple isn't used later in the epistles, but the concept is there. We are to continue to grow and be, uh, be students of Christ. So the focal point here is in terms of our eternal destiny, to become uh, mature disciples of Christ. And so the the opening of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of these beatitudes is to describe the character of those who will uh who will rule and reign with Christ when he comes in his kingdom. Every person who believes in Jesus Christ will be in the kingdom. 
but not every believer will have the same privileges and responsibilities. There are several phrases that are used to describe the enjoyment of those blessings in the millennial kingdom. Uh, One phrase that is used is used in an ambiguous sense. It's used sometimes to refer to what we would call as just getting saved or justified phase one. But many times it is also used to refer to a fuller, richer experience in the future kingdom. And that's the phrase entering the kingdom. And, uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, the Apostle Paul uh, told his audience that it is through many sufferings that we enter the kingdom. So in that, that passage, which we studied recently in our Acts study, is that entering the kingdom can't, in that passage can't be the same as getting saved, phase one, because, number one, It's very clear Paul is already talking to believers. They already have a secure future uh, destiny in heaven. Number two, he is talking to them about the Christian life. He, Because they are already saved, he's not talking to them about getting into heaven. And so when he says we enter into heaven by sufferings, he's not talking about works. If he's talking about justification in that passage, then we would have to have a salvation by works. Those who weren't willing to suffer with Jesus wouldn't be getting into the kingdom. So entering the kingdom in many passages is a term for entering into the full riches and blessings of future destiny that God has for us in the kingdom. Another phrase that is used is inheriting the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom, it has to do with the possession in the kingdom. And then another phrase that, that is often used that we have in, also in our passage is one that is talking about rewards in heaven. The rewards that we're given at the judgment seat of Christ will have something to do with our future role and responsibility uh, in the kingdom. So this whole section here, focuses us and challenges us on the fact that not only does God expect us to trust in Christ so that we have an eternal relationship with him, but that we need to grow and mature in that relationship so that we can be prepared for our, the future destiny and future plan that he has for us. This is related to a number of things, but in the last beatitude, it is related to how we handle suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering. Joy in the midst of unjust accusation and unjust persecution is not the normal human response. In the history of human philosophy, there have been two primary ways in which human beings try to handle unjust suffering. The the first is that we are to embrace it for itself but there is, and, and not avoid it. We're just to embrace it. This would be exemplified, for example, in the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. You just uh, have a stiff upper lip, and you endure it, and you bear it, and you go forward. But it's an embracing of suffering without joy. The other view is to avoid suffering at all cost. This would be exemplified by the philosophy, the ancient philosophy of the Epicureans. You just pursue personal pleasure in life. You avoid uh, any kind of personal suffering. So you have joy, but no suffering. In the first view, you have suffering, but no joy. 
in the biblical view of how we uh, uh, embrace suffering, we are to embrace it because it has a purpose within God's plan. And we are to embrace it with joy, not because we are masochists, not because we enjoy uh, the fact that we are going through suffering, but because we understand that it plays a role in our future destiny. Suffering today has a purpose in relationship to eternity. And that's what we find in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those, Jesus said, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is our challenge. We are to recognize that happiness is ours if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So I want to make some observations about this passage that will help us to understand its implication and application for us today. First of all, this is the last of the Beatitudes, and it is composed of a double blessing statement. Not a double blessing, but a double blessing statement. Two statements. The second blessing statement expands on the first blessing statement, helps us to understand it. So the first statement we read is, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is expanded in verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. So it's he, he's avo- he's uh, uh, avoiding people thinking that it just t- thinking about physical suffering, but also the suffering that comes from slander, from libel, from any form of verbal uh, abuse because of our uh, faith in Christ. So the second blessing statement in verse eleven expands on and develops the first. Persecuted for righteousness' sake is developed in the second statement as being persecuted for Christ's sake. He said, those who are persecuted for my sake. Uh, And so he is equating being persecuted for righteousness' sake with himself. He's identifying himself as the physical God-man who manifests to the human race, race perfect righteousness. So we see this in uh, the way I've highlighted this particular text. For righteousness' sake and for my sake are parallel. Christ is the embodiment of perfect righteousness. And so we see here that the persecution we're talking about is not just going through general suffering, uh, general uh, hostility, but hostility that is directed towards our faith in Christ and our stand for the gospel. This is indicated by the preposition that's used in both of these passages. It's not a common preposition in, in Greek, but it is one that clearly states the cause or the reason for something. So blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, those who are persecuted because of Christ's sake. So this emphasizes the basis for the persecution. The second thing that we uh, see here is that this parallel shows the significance of Jesus. It shows the significance of Jesus. First, he is saying if we're being persecuted for being a disciple of Jesus, it shows that the world in some sense 
sees Jesus as being significant. The world sees Jesus as being significant. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so upset and, uh, and reacts with such hostility toward us. So it shows that the world, no matter what it may say about Jesus, no matter how it may denigrate Jesus, say, oh, he was just another human being, you know, somehow try to uh, minimize his significance, the fact that the world persecutes those who follow Jesus shows that they recognize his significance. I haven't seen too many people recently trying to persecute uh, Hindus or trying to persecute uh, Buddhists because of, of their faith. Second, According to what Jesus says here, God will reward us for enduring unjust persecution because of Jesus. If God is going to reward us for suffering for Jesus' sake, then this shows how significant Jesus is in God's eyes, that Jesus is more than any other human being. Nowhere else in Scripture are, are, is anyone uh, blessed for being persecuted for Moses' sake or for Isaiah's sake, or for John the Baptist's sake. But being persecuted for Jesus' sake shows that God has a higher view of Jesus than of anyone who is just a man. And this leads us to the third point here, and that is that Jesus compares his representatives or disciples with the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament represented God. So if Jesus' disciples are persecuted in the same way that God's representatives are, are persecuted, then this shows how significant Jesus viewed himself. He is making a subtle argument here for his deity. There's a parallel between the prophets of God in the Old Testament who represent God and the disciples of the New Testament who represent Jesus. If the disciples are compared to the prophets of God, then Jesus is analogous to God, and he's making a subtle claim to his deity in this particular passage. This is significant because, as many of you have heard uh, me teach on this before, and it's not original with me, that people really only have three options with regard to how they view Jesus. Many people think that uh, Jesus was a good man. Some people think that he was a social revolutionary. Uh, then you have various uh, Marxist interpretations of Jesus as someone who is uh, coming to the aid of the downtrodden or the poor. And what we see in Scripture is that Jesus represents himself again and again as being equal to God and being God himself, that Jesus is, presents himself as the second person of the Trinity. And so we're left with only three options. The first option is either Jesus is, is uh, telling the truth or he's telling a lie. But basically, that's the argument. Jesus is either telling the truth or he's telling a lie. If he's telling the truth, then he is the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, and we should follow him to the utmost. If he's telling a lie, then he is either deceiving people intentionally or he is self-deceived. He's either deceiving people intentionally, in which case he is the greatest deceiver and one of the most evil human beings of all time because he is telling people that he is the only way to heaven when he's not, that he is the answer to all of their problems when he is not, that he is the only solution to sin when he is not. 
So if he is intentionally deceiving people, then he is quite evil. Jesus' life and message and teaching doesn't stack up with an identification of Jesus as being evil on the level of an Adolf Hitler or an Ayatollah Khomeini or Joseph Stalin. On the other hand, if Jesus isn't intentionally deceiving people, then he is self-deceived. He believes that he is God when he is not, in which case he is psychotic. And he does not have the life of a psychotic individual. He does not act or teach like he is someone who is deranged. And yet, those are the options. So either Jesus is the Lord of heaven, as he claimed to be, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. Those are the three options. There are no other options available to us. So in this uh, argument that Jesus presents here, or in this statement that Jesus presents, he clearly implies that he is fully God. Now, the third thing that we see in this passage is that he is giving an explanation of how persecution is related to happiness and joy. He states this twice, and that it is related to future inheritance and rewards in heaven. When he uses the statement blessed, using the Greek word makarios, what he is talking about is happiness. He is talking about joy. He is talking about an inner tranquility and peace and contentment that is not related to circumstances. In fact, it is just the opposite of what one would expect because of the circumstances. The circumstances are horrible. The circumstances involve uh, personal, physical suffering, torture, uh, mental abuse, emotional abuse, hostility, resentment, rejection, slander, libel, all of the horrible things that we could possibly think of are involved in the term persecution. Persecution, as we'll see in a minute, can come in a variety of different forms, but whenever we think of going through these kinds of circumstances, perhaps the last thing we think of is embracing it with exultation and joy. And yet, as we look at verse 12, what Jesus says Uh, What Jesus commands through these uh, present tense imperatives, which means this should characterize our life all the time, a present imperative indicates a standard operating procedure for the Christian life. We are to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I don't think that's the first thing that comes to many of our minds when somebody is reviling us or uh, acting as if they're going to attack us because of our Christianity. But we are to exalt in that. This is the same thing that James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, endurance is not stated in this passage, but in other passages, endurance is the other element in how we are to handle and face suffering and adversity, which includes persecution. We are to endure it. We're to hang in there. We're not to uh, fade out. We're not to compromise our biblical principles. We're not to compromise the commands of Christ. We are to endure with joy and with exaltation because we know something. And that's what's brought out in the second part of these blessing statements. In verse 10, we're told that we are to, we are happy, 
if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for. That word for indicates an explanation. We say, how in the world can I have joy and happiness in the midst of persecution? Well, we have to under, understand its, its purpose. And that purpose is that for theirs, that is those who have joy in the midst of persecution, they will have the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, if you notice in the text, the first beatitude that we studied back in verse 3 states, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same statement that we find in the last beatitude. What this does in terms of showing us the literary structure here is that this is a tightly organized and composed message, and Jesus is framing it with what uh, in literature would be called an inclusio, where he brackets the doctrine at the beginning and at the end with the same lot, with the same statement showing that it's an all of this teaching is an integrated whole and it is in unity so he begins with the statement talking about theirs is the kingdom of heaven he concludes with the last beatitude theirs is the kingdom of heaven and this shows us again because it's the, theirs is the kingdom of heaven is explained further with the statement in verse verse 12 of reward in heaven that he's talking to believers about being prepared for the judgment seat of Christ and the rewards that we will receive there in light of our future destiny. So we are to live today in light of eternity. We are to live in light of these rewards and inheritance, and that is to be a motivation for us. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are some people who think that, well, there's something wrong with with uh, obeying God and being motivated by future rewards. The future rewards are not something that's accruing to us in, like uh, in, in an analogy with personal wealth or accruing something uh, for us. Uh, what we receive in terms of rewards are produced in us through God the Holy Spirit, not through, the, through selfish motivation, but we want those rewards because that will glorify God. So the, per, the motivation is not self-centered, but God-centered. And so we have a challenge here that we are to live our lives today in light of our future destiny in the kingdom. The question that we all need to ask is each morning is, how am I going to live today in light of my future destiny in heaven? How am I going to organize my life today in light of my destiny in Christ and God's training program for me today? Am I going to live today conforming to his training program or am I going to live in opposition to it? So Jesus, as he expands the principles here, explains that today in real time we are to have joy and, and, and happiness because we live in light of eternity, that it doesn't matter what the current circumstances are, what the hostility is that we may uh, be facing, what abuse there might be, what rejection there might be because we're a Christian. And that can come in any number of contexts. It could happen subtly at the office. It can happen in terms of some sort of social environment. It can happen within a marriage. If it's a situation where you have a mixed marriage where there is a believer and an unbeliever and the unbeliever is hostile to the Christianity of the believer, then that is one form of dealing with persecution. 
and that has happened in many, many different marriages. And so uh, that is also part of the issue here. It's also happened within families. I've known children who have trusted in Christ and come under persecution, hostility from their parents because their parents were not believers and were hostile to Christ. I've also known situations where over time this led to the salvation of the parents. I've also seen the opposite where one parent was a believer and that this led to a certain amount of suffering in the life of uh, of the spouse or the child and that it ultimately resulted in the salvation of a spouse or resu- uh, the salvation of a child. Recently when we saw the video uh, from the pre-trip conferences last year when Michael Rydelnik gave his testimony, that's an example of that. His mother was, had become a believer in the midst of the Holocaust and she was raised an Orthodox Jew, but she was saved uh, through the Holocaust uh, by being in a Lutheran orphanage, and she came to a uh, belief in Jesus as Messiah. She kept that secret in terms of her marriage uh, until uh, she'd been married for quite some time, and Michael was 16 at the time, and then she came out of the closet knowing that her husband had announced when they were married that he would take care of her in any and all circumstances unless she became a Christian. Well, when she became a Christian, he immediately divorced her, so that's persecution for Christ's sake. And Michael turned against her and sought to disprove uh, the gospel. He ended up becoming a believer. So that endurance of suffering uh, for the sake of Christ can have uh, many untold and unintended consequences as God uses that in the life of others. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that persecution is one form of suffering, but suffering, but it is a form of suffering that is specifically related to a person's stand for the truth of the gospel and the Christian way of life. We live in the devil's world. We live in a fallen world. Because of that, we often will go through suffering. There is a lot of suffering in this world. But this is not talking about suffering in general. This is talking about a specific form of suffering that involves uh, persecution. There are two, um, two uses of the word persecution in this passage. The first is used as a perfect passive participle in verse 12, excuse me, in verse 10. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. That's used as a preposition, excuse me, as a participle. And it's interesting, the grammar here, because it's a perfect participle, which refers to completed action, those who have been persecuted. So the focus is really on the future reward, even embedded within that sense of the word, that it's viewed as if this is already completed, and the focus is on that future reality of the kingdom of heaven. The second use that it comes in verse 11 Those who are reviled and persecute you, this is an aorist active subjunctive, which indicates that the action of persecution is probable. It's a future probability and must be taken into account. And so the concept of persecution indicates opposition and hostility. Uh, Just to break this down a little bit, we need to understand that persecution is one form of suffering, but its persecution specifically relates to our testimony and our stand for Christ. 
Uh, second observation about persecution is persecution may be passive or active. By passive, I mean that, that we may not even be aware of it in our lives. It may be due to the fact that uh, we're overlooked for a promotion, that something that good that might come our way in terms of uh, some, some area of life, whether it's in terms of our career, in terms of some sort of social standing, uh, many different areas where somebody just decides, you know, I don't want them to do it because they're a Christian. We may not even be aware that we're uh, going through that that kind of persecution for Christ's sake. But this word that's used here usually refers in the scriptures to a more active form of persecution where people are abused verbally, uh, they're reviled, they are slandered, they are ridiculed, lies are told about them, uh, they're rejected, they're, they have to face a certain amount of hostility because they are a Christian, because of their stand for Christ. And it may even go so far as to involve physical torture and death because they are a Christian. Now, Christian persecution exists all around us. It exists in this country. In fact, last week on the 13th of February, there's a Christian rapper in Houston by the name of Mark Felder who goes by his stage name of Bizzle. And he came out with a rap song that um, uh, took issue with homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And ever since then, he has come under a tremendous amount of verbal abuse and been called all kinds of things, but he took his stand because of his position as a believer in Christ. And so we are going to see that kind of suffering in that area, I believe, much, much more in the Christian community in coming years because this has become a standard of whether or not you are an open, accepting individual or whether you are a a horrible cretin that has no place in American society. And so if you don't accept same-sex marriage, then you are uh, going to be an enemy of the culture around us. And so this is one way in which we will face hostility. And let me challenge some of you. Some of you may be working in a career where you're in human resources, and you're going to be responsible for supporting and promoting policies that are uh, mandated at a federal government level in relationship to same-sex marriage, and you are going to have to decide whether you're going to be a disciple for Christ and take a stand or whether you're going to compromise on that particular issue. And it's not always going to be the same. It, you're going to have to use creativity in some areas where you may not have to leave that position of employment, but there are going to be other situations where you're going to have to, and you're going to have to have biblical wisdom to know how to face and handle those situations. But the bottom line is you're going to have to not compromise your stand for Christ, and there may be loss involved with that. On the other hand, we see examples, you can go out and search these on the Internet, many examples of Christians in other countries who are arrested, who are tortured uh, because of their faith in Christ. There was a news story just last week about three uh, Christians in China who were arrested and thrown in jail and tortured because of their Christian faith. There are numerous stories about Christians who are suffering for their faith in uh, predominantly Muslim countries. And, of course, many people are aware of the uh, hostility and persecution in Egypt.
Egypt of Coptic Christians that have been going on for the last uh, three or four years. So persecution is very much a reality for Christians in much of the world, uh, if not in your neighborhood or in your personal experience. Now, Scripture goes on to say some other things about persecution. Later in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to expand on this and say that we are to love our enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, this is not something that can be generated from our own sin nature. The only way in which we can fulfill this is if we are walking by God the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice that this is not just a passive mental attitude of loving somebody from a distance. This involves action in relation to the person who is intentionally and overtly hostile to us. It is doing good to them when they're going to slap us in the face for doing it, whether that is uh, uh, metaphorical or literal will depend on the circumstances. This is merely an expression in our life, though, of the love of God for us. God provided a Savior for us in that, as Paul says in Romans 5.8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were obnoxious to him, in opposition to him, Christ died for us. The classic example would be the Apostle Paul who was persecuting, as Saul of Tarsus before he was a believer, persecuting believers. And when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so there we see the exemplification of God's love and grace to those who are actively in opposition. And Jesus is offering that at the, on the cross. Jesus said to the Father, forgive them, that is, those who were crucifying him, those who were punishing him unjustly. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the only way in which we can do this is if we're walking by the Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit is producing this character change within us. Jesus also taught that because he was persecuted, we too should expect persecution. In John 15:20 he said remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they kept my word they will keep yours also so as believers we should expect at times that we too will go through suffering and opposition because of our faith in Christ and now there's a couple of other passages that we should also take note of. In Romans 12:14, passage we'll get to this coming Thursday night, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Again, this runs counter to our sin nature where we want to react in hostility and vindictiveness, and yet we are to respond with blessing and help to those who are opposed to us. Paul exemplified this in 1 Corinthians 4.12, talking about himself and his fellow apostles. He said, And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. There we have the same terminology that we find in Matthew 5.11. Being reviled, that is, suffering verbal abuse, we respond with blessing, being persecuted, we endure. There's that other category. We respond to persecution with joy, 
with exaltation and endurance. Second Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, uh, Yes, and all who desire to live godly, that is, if you desire to live a spiritual life and, mature to, and live to spiritual maturity, then you will suffer persecution. I always like to point out this is one of those really clear promises that God has given to every believer. When we talk about the faith rest drill, we often talk about God delivering us from trouble. Well, this is a promise that God made to you. If you want to grow to spiritual maturity, you will suffer persecution in one form or another. You can count on it. But we have the promise of, of Matthew 5 that, that we will reap eternal rewards because of that. In closing, I want to just read through and point out a couple of things from an important passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that uh, states these things. There the writer of Hebrews says, But recall the former days in which you, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. He's writing, let me remind you, to Jewish believers, probably priests, who had trusted in Jesus as Messiah, and as a result of that, they were uh, they went through a lot of persecution from the Jewish community in Judea. It goes on, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. That last part would be suffering by association. So for you had compassion on me in my chain, so that shows that the writer of Hebrews had a personal relationship with those to whom he was writing, you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Notice that. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. That, that, that might make a good sermon for April 15th at some point, but just wanted to see if you were listening. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. This is because you're a Christian. It's not because of taxes. Okay, it's the plundering, the theft of your possessions because you're a believer in terms of persecution. Because you know that you have a better and, endure, and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. What's the motivation here? The motivation is that you are willing to accept the loss of everything in your life today because we know that this is nothing. We have an enduring and eternal possession in heaven that cannot be taken away. Therefore, the conclusion in verses 35 and 36, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, not just joy and exultation, but at the same time perseverance and endurance hanging in there in the midst of difficulty, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. It's not selfish to endure because we know that God is going to bring proper restitution in the future. We live today not for today. We want justification, and we want God to provide restitution today. But the restitution, we're told, will come in heaven. Jesus states this in Luke 14, 14. Although they cannot repay you, that is now, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. We live today in light of eternity. Our response to persecution and hostility is to rejoice, to be happy, and to endure because we have a future reward in heaven with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to 
reflect upon this important principle. Facing opposition, hostility, rejection, slander, persecution is not fun. It's not something that we enjoy in and of itself. But what you have promised and what you have mandated is that we should have joy because of our future destiny. We lean to learn to live today in light of eternity. We are to grow today in the in the, uh, the faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, understanding all that you have provided for us that we might live in the midst of the most excruciating excruciating and horrible circumstances today because we understand our role our, in your plan and our future destiny. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to pay your penalty that we might have eternal life. And Father, we pray that you might anyone here who's not saved would take this time to make that their eternal destiny certain simply by believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone for their salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. In Christ's name, amen.